Good morning again, everybody. So glad you're here. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. Uh, and as you make your way there, uh, let me just say hello to the downtown campus. And also just, man, the last couple of weeks uh, at church, at Cove, at downtown have been just so fun. Just people kind of returning from their summer schedules and maybe school starting has kind of brought people kind of back into a, just a new rhythm of, of, of being part of the, the body. And so for the Women's Connection event that happened last Sunday night, wow, what a great turnout. So many people involved. Such a great work by Natalie and the team there to put something together for ladies to connect and be part of Bible studies through the fall. Uh, then you, you've heard about the student ministry experience this past Wednesday night with so many students and just a lot of excitement there too. And on Sunday mornings, uh, you guys have just continued to serve, uh, continue to participate. Uh, at, it's at Cove and downtown. I know that uh, the services have felt full just as people are settling back in in August. So just thank you. Uh, you help in all those ways, kind of attending, serving, worshiping, by creating something that I just know God is using in our hearts and becomes, I hope, a catalyst for the way we want to connect with our neighbors and the way we want to posture ourselves in the city uh, to reach people and so that they can hear about Jesus. And when they come here on a Sunday, uh, they get to see uh, this tangible gospel in a way because of your joy, uh, your service, uh, your care for one another. So thank you. Just it's been, it's been a neat experience the last few weeks just my role at Downtown and Code to be able to watch and observe and so many really positive, and th positive things happening. So really proud of you guys. Thank you for what you're doing right now and I look forward to how the fall is gonna shape out for us as a church. Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. We're gonna look at this section and actually we're gonna move into Matthew chapter 16 as well. But we'll, let's just finish off the rest of this chapter. Uh, and as if you're new and a guest with us, we're just making our way through the gospel of Matthew. And so where we end today, uh, we're gonna pick up next week. So it's just a great, great way for you to follow along in your own personal time and devotional or just know where we're gonna be next week and be looking at that passage, you know, even in advance. So verse 29 says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, the men, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw a mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Verse 32. Then Jesus came and called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. If this passage sounds familiar to you, it's maybe connected to a passage that we looked at just a few weeks back in Matthew chapter 14 as Jesus fed the 5,000. And so here we see another miracle of feeding. And at times, 
The culture looking at the Bible wonders, did we get this story confused? Are we confusing one story with another? Are there really two distinct separate miracle feedings or did we just get the numbers wrong and kind of we have the same story presented to us twice? And so we're gonna look at that this morning a little bit and hear even in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 16 that these are two distinct feeding miracles, two miracles. And so we're gonna understand why we see this given to us in Matthew's gospel. Because when we look at the feeding of 5,000, just a few chapters earlier, out of that flowed this really wonderful dialogue with Jesus and those that were with him. And they were eating the food, but they were asking Jesus out of that miracle for a sign, for manna. Send us bread from heaven to show us that you really are the Messiah. And Jesus makes this incredible declaration saying that he is the bread of heaven, that he is the bread of life, that he is the real manna that has come down from heaven to us. And so it is wonderful. If you want to understand more about, look back into that section of scripture, uh, kind of understand that out of that flows this powerful statement about who Jesus is as the bread of life. And so with all that already said, why does Matthew give us another feeding miracle? Like it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of things that Jesus did. Not all the miracles are recorded within the Gospels. And so the Gospel writers kind of organize and pick and choose by the Holy Spirit certain things that they want us to understand. And so a question that you might ask is, why would we have two feeding miracles? Why a feeding of the 5,000? And why this one, a feeding of the 4,000? So I want to give you just a couple thoughts about what's interesting about this one and why it adds to what God wants us to hear. Generally held is this feeding of the 5,000, the first miracle, was a feeding of Israelites, that the audience was predominantly Jewish. And now this feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has come from Tyre and Sidon outside Israel, Mark's gospel actually says that it's around the Decapolis area. So it's in Israel, but it's an area predominantly filled with Gentiles. And so some believe that Jesus is doing something in these feedings, showing how the gospel is going out to the world, not just Israel, but to the Gentile world as well. In fact, there's a little clue in verse 31 of Matthew 15. After, the, you know, after Jesus is doing all of these things, healing people, it says, and they glorified the God of Israel. And that's an interesting thing if you're an Israelite. But like, why wouldn't they say, and they glorified the Lord? Or they glorified Yahweh, but they glorified the God of Israel. Gives this impression that the God of Israel is not their understood God, that they may have other gods. And so to reference the God of Israel, maybe because this is a Gentile audience. This is an audience that's not familiar with God's people in the same way that we've seen so far. What's also interesting about the second feeding miracle is the bewilderment of the disciples. Twice, right, very similar, but twice they get confused about the lack of food, right? It's, there's a kind of memory loss that we're watching unfold within these disciples that they had the same experience before. 5,000 people plus women and children. How are we gonna feed this group? Let's gather up. There's a, small, there's a boy with a small lunch, right? They, they divide it out. That wasn't that long ago. And here there are now 4,000 people, another great multitude. They're hungry. Jesus wants to feed them. And they're like, what are we gonna do? This is a desolate place. We don't have enough food for all these people. I love the biblical honesty here. Because if you're trying to create a winsome 
presentation of who Jesus is and the, and the certainty the disciples had that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Lord, is God, you wouldn't include all of these stories about the disciples not really understanding what's going on. They seem constantly confused. And, and I love that because it, it makes it real. It, it makes the Bible more reliable, more honest when you see these stories that they're actually just forgetting just what they learned just earlier. This thing that just happened, they've forgotten. A couple, a couple months ago, Jennifer and I are Friday night, I think it's Friday night, we're getting ready for bed. Uh, I'm kind of working on something. She's kind of going through some notes. We're just kind of sitting there in bed and she was like, hey, I know she's going through the calendar. That's what she's doing. She's going through the calendar and she was like, hey, do you know it's our anniversary in two days? And I, I paused because I've been married a long time and, and a question like that is one that you don't want to answer too quickly because I can't tell if she's forgotten that it's our anniversary or she's asking me if I've forgotten it's our anniversary. She goes like, hey, do you know it's our anniversary in two days? And I'm like, huh, like, did you know it was our anniversary in two days? And she goes, I completely forgot. Like it's Friday night, our anniversary is Sunday. Like I'm looking at the calendar, I had no idea. And then I'm like, me too, like I had no idea. Like there's no cards, there's no gifts. Like everything that would be, be normal to the planning of this day that happens every year. This is year 29 and we're 29 years into this and forget that in 48 hours we have an anniversary to celebrate. And I can remember this moment like, so, uh, so what, do you, what, do you, what do you wanna do? And she's like, because there's no cards, there's no gifts. Like, are we going to make plans? Sunday's full. It's going to be a busy day. She goes, well, I, I'm okay if we don't do a lot this year. I said, are you sure? Right? Like, I, wanna, I want us to kiss or shake hands. I think we shook hands. Like, I'm like, I, I need you to commit to that because if we don't do anything and a few months later you bring this up about how I forgot the anniversary, I want us to both be in on this. But this, I, like, this is part of being married. It, it happens every year and here we are forgetting like it just it just snuck up on us and this is the same thing that you're seeing in the disciples that listen the more that the more that we understand of what Jesus really did the more we realize we never knew what he was doing like this is what's unfolding within the story there is this Christian amnesia that I think is revealed in this second feeding that Matthew gives us because the disciples have just been with Jesus. They've just seen loaves multiplied. And here they are with Jesus again, looking at the crowd and unsure, what are we gonna do? How often do we forget? How often do we go to God and say, God, what are you gonna do? I'm in, I got a situation. I'm in need. I'm in crisis. Right? Are, are you listening, God? Are, are you hearing my prayers? How often do we approach God in this way as if he's off the clock, no longer working? Like we haven't seen him work before. It's just this situation right now and we're confused. We're unsure. I love the way Matthew gives us this. I think another reason why Matthew records the crowds being healed and fed is because Matthew is confirming something. Matthew is, is bringing into our view this fulfillment of Old Testament promises and passages. Matthew doesn't want us to keep looking at Jesus as if we're unsure or unaware of really what's going on. Matthew wants to give us a, a kingdom lens, 
an Old Testament perspective that Jesus is fulfilling things, Jesus is completing things, that there are long-held hopes and promises in the Old Testament, and through Jesus, he's bringing those into the future. Like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, that when the Old Testament talked about the moment when the Messiah would come, when God would, would be with his people in a new way, when the world would be restored, when the Gentiles and the nations would be blessed, like, there are pictures and images and hopes. Let me show you one of those. Isaiah chapter 13. 35 says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Psalm twenty-two twenty-six: the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there are passages like this about the blind being able to see, about the deaf being able to hear, and hear the afflicted eating and being satisfied. Remember what it said? That the food went out, the food was distributed, and everybody was satisfied. There's this picture, right? This promise, images of the Old Testament that Matthew's trying to drag in front of us so that we are not confused about what Jesus is doing that through him we realize the kingdom is working out. The people are in wonder. These people are like, they're wondering what is going on through the healing, through the feeding. There's a, a kind of shalom, a wholeness that's being addressed, that's being offered to us. You also pick up on the gospel writers how often they talk about on the mountain or mountains. That this is, and sure enough, this is in Matthew's gospel too, as we realize that Jesus goes up on the mountain and it's from the mountains, these things begin to happen. We hear Jesus begin addressing the crowd, looking on them with compassion, wanting to help them. Isaiah 25, 6, 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Look at Isaiah 52, seven, how beautiful Upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. I want you to see that Matthew is not just recording miracles as a display of power. Matthew is recording miracles as signs of what Jesus is doing that Jesus is doing things that are pointing us backward into the Old Testament to show us prophecies and promises that he is fulfilling, and Jesus is pointing us forward into how God is going to further restore, further heal, create this banquet for us at the end of all things. Look at Revelation 7 and see how the language is very similar. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here's what Matthew wants you to hear. 
When the true king comes, there will be help. When the true king of Israel comes, there will be healing. There will be change. Division will be unified. Poverty will be remedied. Restoration will come to the world. And this is what Jesus is saying. When the true king comes, you will be home. You'll be home. That God is bringing home to us. That he's, he's returning something to us. Matthew wants us to have this perspective because Jesus is gonna go into two specific interactions. We're gonna see in Matthew chapter 16. Two specific interactions that he wants you to have this lens that Jesus is doing something here, something important. Matthew 16, verse one. And when the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees together. These guys are always fighting. They're always battling. It's it's the conservatives, it's the religious conservatives and the religious liberals. But they're unified in this. They oppose Jesus. And they go to Jesus and they're asking Jesus for a sign. In other words, we want you to do something to show us that you truly are with the authority of God doing the works of God. We want you to do something. That's what they're asking Jesus to do. Mark's gospel says that when the Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus to do a sign, that he he deeply sighed. They asked him and he was like, the religious leaders aren't ignorant that, that Jesus has done miracles. Like they're aware of the feedings, they're aware of the healings. What they want, though, is something else. They're looking for something different, something specific, right? They're saying, we see all of this in what you're doing, but we want something else. Why are you giving us food distribution to the poor when we need Rome thrown off of our backs? That's what they're asking. They're asking for something more. Like, we don't need a miracle potluck. Like, we need something else. Feeding the poor isn't enough. There's a certain sign the Pharisees are wanting. And as Matthew gives us this, he's signaling to us unbelief. And here's the unbelief. We believe you, Jesus, if you do what we ask you to do. We'll believe you if you do the things that we ask you to do. It's a conditional faith. Lord, if you'll do this, then we'll follow you. Then we'll believe in you. Two back-to-back feedings, numerous healings, but they want a sign that they choose. We want you to do something different. We want more than what you're doing. And Jesus says, here's the truth. You guys, you can look at the weather in the morning and know if it's gonna rain that night. You can look at the weather at night and know whether it's gonna rain in the morning. Like You are good at seeing the indications and signs and markers within this world, but you're not good at recognizing spiritual things. And so, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm not going to give you an additional sign. The only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But they're asking for more, and Jesus says no. Now, what a challenging idea, because often 
we look at spiritual seeking and the spiritual desire for more as a sign of spirituality, as a sign of growth. But Jesus says, you're asking and asking for more, and it's actually showing that you are a marriage breaker, that you're an adulterous generation. So what is he saying? A few months ago, when um, my daughter was, got married, my oldest daughter got married in June, but a few months back, her fiance, now husband, Jalen, came for that weekend. I knew what the weekend was about. It was the weekend where he was gonna come. He and I needed to spend some time together. He was going to share with me, you know, all the things that he loved about my daughter, ask for permission, ask for blessing. And so we started Saturday morning, we were out running some errands, turned into lunch, and the conversation just began to unfold. And he asked me at one point, about his, you know, tell, told me what his plans were. And I stopped and said, Jalen, just for a minute, like, what do you love about Lydia? Tell me, tell me what you love about her. Because I know all the things there are to love about her already. I know that. But I wanted him to say it. And he, he did a wonderful job. He did a marvelous job. But what if Jalen in that presentation said to me, well, Mr. Yeager, what I love about your daughter is that she always agrees with me just love that about her. And I also love that she lets me do whatever I want. Like, that's a really wonderful thing. If, if he had said those things, like there would have been a moment for you and me where like, huh, like, I don't know if that's how this relationship is meant to work. I don't know if that's really a good indication. Years ago, I listened to a, uh, a pastor talk about kind of getting married and this checklist that young adults and singles have for their future spouse. And this checklist can be pretty involved. And the idea around this list that you've prayed over and made is that if you can find somebody to check all these boxes, well, then that's your spouse. That's the person that you should marry. Like, that's the one for you. But he makes the comment that this checklist can be a cautionary um, experiment in that if you create a box that everybody needs to check, that somebody needs to check in order to meet all of your needs and to be what you want, what you're actually doing is you're finding somebody that you never have to change for. That you don't have to adjust your life. That somebody can come into your life and meet all of your needs and do everything the way that you want them to do and there's no adjustment on your part. And what Jesus is doing by resisting the Pharisees in this moment, by not giving them another sign, is this, is that he knows this, that if Jesus meets, right, if Jesus proves himself on all of our demands, if Jesus measures himself in this way and gives himself to all of our demands, he will be a God we will never worship. And this is what we begin to see. If you have a God that always meets your demands, you have a God that you aren't really in a relationship with. You have a God whose ways are your ways, whose thoughts are your thoughts. And if you have a relationship with a God that doesn't challenge you, you don't have really a relationship with that God. And so Jesus' life, he says, my whole life is a sign. Everything that I'm doing, the miracles are a sign of my compassion, my character, the kingdom of God coming. Jesus isn't here to meet the demands of skeptics. And this is what we begin to challenge ourselves with. Like, what are you asking God of right now? What are you saying to him? That's like, God, if you'll do this, then I'll believe. I'll follow. What are we asking for? Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Which many believe is this moment where Jesus will come through the cross 
and out of the empty tomb. That Jonah, through self-sacrifice, throws himself into the sea, is swallowed up by the fish, swallowed up by death, to then be released three days later. And Jesus says, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get me on the cross through self-sacrifice, swallowed up by death for a moment, and then vindicated and victorious through the resurrection. That's the sign you're going to get. Jesus isn't here to impress skeptics. Look with me in what Jesus says next. Matthew chapter 16, verse 5. When Jesus and his disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? Is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These passages, they're linked. As you look at Jesus feeding the 4,000, then he moves into a conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees and then into a conversation with the disciples. Do you remember what the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted? They wanted Jesus to do more. We, we need you to do more for us to believe. We need you to do more to prove yourself. And then Jesus moves from that into the disciples and what are they concerned about? They don't have enough. They need more bread. They need more. And Jesus enters into this moment with him and you can almost, you can kind of hear his exasperation. All right, Jesus, are we really talking about bread right now? Let me remind you, right? Five loaves, 5,000, 12 baskets left over. 4,000 people, seven loaves, seven baskets left over. Do you guys not understand what's going on? And they, they don't. <laughs> Jesus is like, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about this conditional faith to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is this idea that you haven't seen enough, that I'm not doing enough, that you need more. The disciples have Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God in their presence, and they're worried about bread. They've seen the feeding of the 5,000. They just left the feeding of the 4,000. They jump in a boat and they're like, I don't know if we've got enough dinner. And Jesus says, that's not what this is about. Don't you perceive that there's more going on here? That the kingdom of God is breaking forward. That there's things happening here that are incredible and amazing. It's not about bread right now. It's about faith. And faith is not seeing what you don't have. Faith is seeing what you do have. And what's before you right now is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. One group wants more and one group's worried they don't have enough. There's always this temptation in our faith and in our pursuit of God to move past the cross and the resurrection into prophecies and mysticism and sensationalism. There's always this thought like, I, like 
like the cross and the resurrection are kind of like the baselet, the basics. And, and eventually you're going to kind of move into all these other kind of mystical and fantastical things. But beware of this, right? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware that there's, there's something inside of us that always says, like, I need more. I need more than what you've already done. That greater faith believes in the sufficiency of Jesus, that he's enough that what he's doing in his life and on the cross and through the resurrection is enough. The quest for signs and asking God to display more power may actually be a sign of unbelief and worldliness. Faith asks us to see what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished and secured by the cross and the resurrection and then be the ones who work to bend and shape our lives around his word and his will. Not making demands. Not saying, God, if you'll do this, then I will follow you, then I'll finally believe. Jesus saying, everything about my life is something to show you that the kingdom is breaking forth, that what you truly need is here, that heaven is coming near to you. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing heaven to you, to make it your home. And the cross and the resurrection have secured that. That the cross was one sacrifice for all sin, for all time. That Jesus' sacrifice was so complete, so significant, that his sacrifice, perfect as it was, pays the penalty and ransoms all who would believe in him. And the resurrection, it was the vindication of Jesus, that he was sinless, that the wages of sin is death, but because Jesus had never sinned, death could not hold him. So the resurrection confirms Jesus was perfect. Jesus was obedient to God's will, and now Jesus is alive, and the empty tomb says, you can be alive with him. Your life now by faith, joined with Jesus, experiences new life now and forever, securely, because Jesus is alive, you too will always be alive with him. The cross and resurrection is it enough? Is it enough for you to say, yes, I can believe in that. And if you do, your life changes. In just a minute, we're going to remember the Lord through the Lord's Supper and celebrate through this moment where we take the bread and the juice and remember Jesus' body and blood and his sacrifice, that it's sufficient, that it's enough to change our lives. It's enough to begin to change the world, that it was enough to bring the kingdom to us. And there's a story with King David that has helped me understand the Lord's Supper. And I wanted to share it with you as we just prepare for that, as we approach it. It says, there was a moment in King David's life when he was um, surrounded by the Philistines. And King David had these really amazing soldiers and mighty men with him. And David begins to long. He begins to long for home. And he makes this comment amongst his soldiers that if I could just have some water from the well at Bethlehem, and maybe you know that feeling, maybe you know what it's like to not be home and to know like, oh, if when I go home, it's this meal. It's this thing that I eat or this thing that I drink that brings me comfort, that makes me feel close to family and friends. And David said the very same thing. If I could just drink from the well in Bethlehem, and his soldiers, his soldiers hear him. Three of them break through the Philistine lines. They go to Bethlehem. They bring back water from the well and they give it to David. Let me show you what he says. 
Second Samuel verse chapter 23 says, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. See, David didn't want to profit at the readiness and the expense of these men's lives, right? In other words, to drink the water would have been for him like drinking their blood, like their, their sacrifice, their, their willingness. And so he wouldn't. He couldn't do it. And the story of David gives us a clue into what Jesus is doing with the feeding of the 4,000. What he's ultimately doing too in this presentation of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus is saying at his expense that he's bringing home to us. That Jesus is doing something as the kingdom is coming, that there are healings and feedings and miracles that are happening, that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in and Jesus isn't requiring that you make a long distance, that you go there yourselves, but he's bringing it to us. David took the cup from the well and he wouldn't drink it because of the risk and the sacrifice that it meant. Jesus, the true king of compassion, invites us to drink, to take his sacrifice, to see how he's broken his body, to see how he spilt his blood so that you could have home. You could be home. And if we do that, if we see all of what he's done through the cross and through the resurrection, it is enough to change our lives and give us life. Let's pray. God, this morning, I pray that you'll help us see that it's not, it's not an additional miracle that we need. It's just trusting in the perfect life and the sufficient death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. Church, do you perceive that? Do you agree with that? Are you asking Jesus to do something more? God, this morning I pray that you would give us faith that to call on Jesus as our Savior and to believe that the tomb is empty saves us. That God, that you would take our lives forward in security of all that Jesus has accomplished to satisfy our hungers and our thirsts, to meet our needs, to bring the, the kingdom near and to help us be home. Really home with you, Jesus. Lord, as we take these next few minutes, shepherd us, wipe our tears away because of what you've done. Let true faith create change in us, a movement in our lives towards your word and towards your will because of what Christ has done. And it's in his name we pray.